listening to Connection Church's podcast. Good evening. Almost said morning. Almost got me. Uh, good evening. Glad you guys are here. Um, welcome to Connection Church. If it's your first time, we're glad that you're here and uh, thankful that you decided to worship with us. Um, and uh, today we're actually going to start a new series. It's called Tried and True. And this series is about um, the fact that Jesus was tried. He was arrested. He was tried. He remained true to the mission. Um, he, he fulfilled the mission that he had, uh, the, the call that, that God had put on him to come and be our Savior, to be our Lord. Uh, and we're going to look at that. We started in January going through the book of John. And this will be wrapping up the book of John for us. We've, we've mixed in some other series throughout over the last year uh, or a few months. And uh, so this will kind of finish it out. We'll be looking at uh, John 18, 19, 20, and 21 over the next few weeks. And so if you have your Bible today, we're going to be in John 18. Uh, so you can turn there. Um, let's read the first two verses, and then we'll jump into the message. John 18, it says, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love in our lives. God, we thank you for the power of your word. God, I pray tonight that it would be exactly what it is, good seed. And God, I pray that our hearts would be good soil, that the seed of your word would sink down into our hearts and that God, it would produce fruit in our lives. Jesus, do a, do a great work in us tonight. As we're gathered here in your name, God, we know you're, you're present. And so we ask that you would speak to us, come in power, come through the living and active word that we're gonna preach tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, tonight, uh, I want to look at John 18, as we said, and we're going to go through several of those scriptures, uh, but there's one particular verse that really jumped out at me as I was preparing this message a few weeks ago, and it's actually in verse 38, and, and it's when Pilate, who's the governor at that time, um, it comes and he's about to sentence Jesus to death. And the, the question that he asks is Jesus says that he's come um, into the world to establish a kingdom and he says everyone on the side of truth listens to me. The question that Pilate asks is what is truth? And I know this, that we live in a time when that's something that's really questioned. That's something that, that we get to where, where people, um, truth has become relative. It's something that uh, truth is up to the individual. But this is my belief that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so there is a truth. And what we see in John 18 is we see a group of people, and we're going to look at this. We're going to look at how all of these different people um, see Jesus in a different way. They're all um, misunderstanding who Jesus is. They're all missing the truth. And then we're going to see how laced this, this chapter is with the truth. And, and I want you to see um, that, that the truth of God was before them, and they were just too blind to see it. And my prayer is that if any of us are in that place in our lives, that we would be able to tonight to have our eyes opened by the Holy Spirit to recognize the truth, to see the truth, to understand that Jesus is the truth, um, and that that would be what happens in our heart um, tonight is that uh, that veil is removed and we're able to see clearly 
who Christ is. And so as we look at the first person that I want to look at, and again, we're going to look at several different people or groups of people. The first person that we see in here is Judas. And, and Judas, uh, if I were to give one word that I believe describes Judas at this point uh, in the story, I believe Judas was disappointed. I believe Judas was disappointed, which led to frustration, which led to some very uh, uh, stupid decisions. And so when Judas uh, is looking at this, he's thinking that Jesus is about to establish a kingdom that's going to be um, earthly, that's going to be of this world. And he thinks that he's going to be on the ground floor of a new empire. Um, They're finally going to overthrow the Romans and and that they're going to be able to establish this kingdom on earth. And Jesus, or Judas, I believe, is disappointed because Jesus, he he realizes, is not going to establish that kind of kingdom. It appears to him that that this is not going to take place. It's not going to happen. And so I believe Judas is in a place where he's pouting a little bit and decided, I'm going to try to get something out of this anyway. And so he sells Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver, goes about his business, and and literally I feel like has his lips poked out because Jesus isn't doing what he wants to do. It's kind of like my four-year-old Reed, who be praying for him, by the way, he fell off a slide today. I just got back from the hospital with x-ray in his arm and everything. Doesn't like it's broken. But if you know Reed, it's not surprising that he hurt something because he's always bouncing off of things and jumping off of things and running into things and running into people and kicking people and hitting people and those kind of things. And so, uh, but, but yesterday, he was so excited because he was about to play his first soccer game. He's four years old and, and for Reed to play soccer is perfect because he gets to run around and kick things, which is something he likes to do a lot, um, and just to run around and kick stuff. And so um, he was going to play his first soccer game. We wake up, it's raining. Uh, we get the text and the email that they're not going to play the game, so we have to break the news to Reed. Uh, we tell Reed, you know, you're not going to get to play in the game. And he's like, oh, you know, you think that he had broken his arm um, by the way he was acting. And, and, and the reality reality of it was it was just a game, but, but he was just utterly disappointed. It's sort of the way I picture Judas in this, this scene is that Judas is just pouting. He's just frustrated. He's just aggravated that Jesus isn't doing what he thought he was going to do, that Jesus wasn't accomplishing what he thought he was going to accomplish. And so I believe he's acting in very, a very childish way um, that takes him uh, beyond probably what he ever thought he would do in selling Jesus out. And I wonder for us, like how many times have we done that when Jesus doesn't appear to be um, doing exactly what we want him to do, that we just get mad and pout about what God's not doing um, rather than thanking him for what all he is doing and has done. And it even says in here that Judas knew the place where Jesus was. And when I was reading that and studying through this, what it made me think about was that Judas had taken this invitation of God. Judas had taken this invitation that Jesus had given him, an invitation to come and follow him, and he was using it to try to secure his own blessing. And I wonder how many times we do that, that we come to a place where we use Jesus' invitation to follow, to be a part of his his, uh, ministry, to be a part of his kingdom, and we use that to try to secure our own blessing, to get our own way out of that, to get our own um, blessing from God instead of looking at exalting him. I believe one of the reasons that Judas was in this state of mind, in this disappointment, is because he had simply thought that Jesus was going to make him something great rather than realizing that his life existed to make Jesus greater and make him known, right? And so I think as long as we're in a place where we're, we're thinking that this whole thing, this whole story is about us, we're going to be disappointed in a lot of what Jesus does. 
But when we come to the conclusion that I'm here, I exist to exalt him, I exist so that to point people to his greatness, then we begin to understand the kingdom and the kingdom begins to make a lot more sense. But I believe Judas was utterly frustrated, disappointed because he was in a place where Jesus wasn't exalting him or making him great. He didn't realize that his life existed to make Jesus more known, to make Jesus greater. It says in this that, so Judas came to the grove, this is in verse three. Jesus came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. Now, when I read that, I thought of this, how, how rebellious uh, of Judas is this? That Jesus isn't doing what he wants him to do, so now he's leading a revolt against Jesus. But how many times do we do that when, when God uh, isn't making much of us, when we're not being exalted, when God's not doing great things for us, um, we tend to have that same reaction to rebel, to revolt, to say, you know, God, what are you doing? And we, we begin to press our will. And if you look at the next part of that verse, it says they were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. And so they were coming expecting a fight. They were coming expecting resistance. How many times do we resist God's will rather than submitting to it? How many times, and I'm as guilty of this as anyone, that we literally fight God tooth and nail to try to accomplish our own plans, our own desires, rather than submitting to the plans and desires of God. Verse four, it says, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? See, I believe this, that that's the biggest question that we'll ever answer in our life, is who is it that we want? Do we want Jesus or do we want something else? Um, What would our life tell us that we want? And the way we live, the things we go after, are we pursuing Christ or are we pursuing our own desires? Um, Jesus is, is asking this question, who is it that you want? And then they come to this answer in verse 5, it tells us, they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And see, here's the thing is we can say the right answer, we can say the right thing, but we can say it with the wrong motive and we can say it with the wrong heart. And so they, they had the answer right, didn't they? We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And when we're posed that question, who is it that you want? We know the right answer, but is that who we're really going after in our heart? So they were seeking Jesus, but it was with the wrong intention and the wrong motives. And it says in verse five, I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with him. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Here's something that amazes me. When, when Judas is there, uh, he, had, he had spent three years with Jesus, looking at the miracles, seeing the miracles, seeing Jesus do all these incredible things, experiencing the power of God, and yet somehow um, he could never wrap his mind around Jesus and, and the truth of who he was. Then we see the soldiers and these officials who had come from the priests um, who were coming to, to arrest Jesus and to take him for trial. Um, we see that they come and, and, and they experience the power of God for, for a, a split second, for a moment here. You see that the deity of Jesus, the, the, God, the, 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 the God in Christ, the, the, the um, power of God, the power of Jesus is somehow felt and seen as they withdraw and they fall to the ground and they experience God's power, but they didn't recognize who Jesus is. The truth was standing before them, but they couldn't recognize the truth when he was there. And, and I wonder for us, how many times have we been around the power of God? How many times have we experienced even maybe in our 
our life the power of God, seeing God work in our life in some way, and yet we still don't wrap our mind around the truth of who Jesus is, or we still rebel against him, we still revolt against him, we still go our own way, even when we've experienced the truth of who Jesus really is. And so I believe that Judas represents us in many ways when we see that he, he was going after Jesus with wrong motives, with the wrong heart, looking for the wrong thing, wanting Jesus to make a lot out of him rather than him exalting Jesus so that people would make a lot out of Jesus. And so the next person I want us to look at is Peter. In verse 7, it says, again, he asked them, who is it you want? So the same question asked again. And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I've not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, it's almost like when you read scripture, and I'm sure I'll have to like regret these words one day when I see Simon Peter, but it's almost like when you read about Peter and you say, then Simon Peter, it's almost like do 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 you know what I mean? Because Simon, he just, Peter just messes up so much, you know? And, and so it's like, then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? I read all the gospels and all these different accounts. And so I'm trying to draw from all of these and try to get a picture of where these disciples were and these different people were. And I believe that Peter was in a place of confusion. I believe Peter was trying to figure out what is Jesus doing? Right? We're here and, and we're about to have this fight. They're about to try to take uh, the, the rabbi. They're trying to take Jesus. I'm not letting that happen. Right? But he had to be so confused about this because um, already um, Jesus had told him when he confessed Jesus as the Christ, he said, you're the rock and upon this rock I'll build my church. He had told Peter that uh, earlier on, right? And then a few verses later when, G when Peter uh, you know, began to rebuke Jesus because Jesus was saying he was going to die, um, Peter then gets called Satan. Right? So in a few verses, he goes from the rock that the church is going to be planted on to Satan, right? Um, the author of evil, this, this evil person. So how confusing is that? You look at him and, and then he, he gets rebuked for not wanting Jesus to die. He comes to this point right here where he's defending Jesus because he doesn't want him to get arrested and thinking this has got to be the right thing to do, right? So he tries to cut a guy's head off, misses, cuts off his ear. If you read the other gospels, you realize this, that when he cuts off his ear, Jesus goes and heals it. Peter's like, I'm risking everything, trying to keep you from getting arrested and you're healing the enemy. What are you doing? Peter's world's flipped upside down. Nothing would seem to make sense to him in his life. And see, Peter too thought that this was going to be a physical kingdom, this worldly kingdom, that he would be one of the ones in charge. And now it's all seeming to fall apart. Everything he put the last three years of his life in, all of his hope, all of his, his dreams, everything seemed to be falling apart, but he just didn't understand what Jesus was doing. He was not, Jesus didn't come to establish a physical kingdom that would be temporary. He came to establish a spiritual kingdom that would be eternal and a spiritual kingdom that would one day make everything new. Peter just couldn't grasp the fact that what Jesus was doing was so much better than establishing a physical kingdom. But this is what he's setting up. And here's how disillusioned Peter actually is. Peter draws the sword and he strikes this, this guy, this servant. 
And it's as if Peter thinks that he can have a part in his own salvation, in his own deliverance, right? That he can be the one who has a part in bringing in this new kingdom. I want you to see this because that's what he thinks is happening. He thinks that they're about to bring in a new kingdom, that Jesus is going to establish this kingdom. Peter actually thinks that somehow he can be a part of his own deliverance, his own salvation. But sometimes we do the same thing. We think that somehow we can have a part in our salvation when the only thing that we can really do is fall on the grace and mercy of Jesus. Is to come to a place where we recognize the fact that Jesus is the one who's done it all for us and it's through faith in him that we are saved. It's by coming to a place of recognizing I I can't do it. In fact, if you look at verses 15 through um, 18 and then 25 through 27, you see the three times that Peter denies Christ. That's what we can do on our own. That's what we've shown throughout the history of the world and history of humanity is what we're good at is rebelling against God and denying him, turning our backs on him. But what God does for us is he comes and he makes a way for us when there wasn't a way. But Peter somehow thought, There's, there, I'm going to be a part of my own deliverance and salvation. And here's the thing, that I can do that very easily. I can easily think that, that somehow um, I have something to do with my salvation, rather than coming every day and falling at the, the feet of Christ, falling on His mercy and falling on His grace. And, and our minds tell us that if, if I don't have a part, if I don't do something, then, then I'm not going to follow. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to live godly. I'm not going to live the way God wants me to live. But the reality of it is we will, because when we come to faith in Christ, he puts his spirit in us, gives us new desires, changes our heart, and makes us want to live a different way. That's one of the evidences of salvation is that our bent towards sin begins to be bent towards God. It's not that we become perfect, but we begin to grow in godliness and have a desire for God, and have a desire for his ways. Further proof of Peter's misunderstanding, Jesus tells him, put your sword away, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? The cup all throughout the Old Testament represented God's wrath. So basically what Jesus is saying, I've gotta take the wrath of God. I've gotta take his wrath upon myself. What Peter didn't realize is that wrath that Jesus was going to take upon himself was the wrath that he was due as much as those whom he was trying to kill. As much as those who were coming to arrest Jesus, Peter was just as big of a sinner. He, he was still a sinner. He was, he was in need of grace. He was in need of a savior. He was in need of someone to come and to take the wrath of God off of him so that he could be set free to live for God. So that he could be set free from sin and death. But I believe Peter was very disillusioned. In this, he didn't understand it. I don't think he really began to grasp it until the day of Pentecost and the book of Acts, chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes and, and the Spirit begins to lead them into all truth, remind them of what Jesus had said and done, and it all began to click and make sense. I believe this is a time where they were trying to put it together, but they just couldn't wrap their minds around what Jesus was doing. Verse 12, it says, then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. It says, they bound him and brought him first to Annas, and who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. The next group is the soldiers. It says that the soldiers and the officials came and they arrested Jesus. 
And I believe if there was one word that would describe these soldiers, if there was one word that would, would put in perspective what they were doing, I believe it was duty. That it was just their duty. All they know is we're out in the middle of the night, in the middle of the morning, and we're out here to arrest some carpenter turned rabbi that's stirring up the, the entire uh, city of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. And so I believe for them it was just duty, just something that they had to do. Something that, that, that was just part of uh, the requirement of their job. And how many times is that what it becomes for us in our Christian walk, in our faith journey with Jesus? It just becomes something else I have to do. Let me ask you this, is there any passion in your life for God? Or is it just something that you have to do? Uh, when you look at Sunday church, or this morning or evening or whatever, and, and coming to worship God with other believers and hearing the word, is that something that, that you're passionate for, that you desire? Or is it just something else that's another thing on your list of to-dos so that you have to, to uh, of an inconvenient list and a, a busy life that's already way busier than it needs to be? Is there a desire for his presence? Because it's easy for us to get into a place where what happens is it just becomes about our duty. It becomes about what I have to do. Rather than enjoying God and rejoicing in our salvation, not, not working for our salvation, but living out of our salvation, we, we come to a place where it's just about what I've got to do and what I've got to get done so that I can try to make myself acceptable to God. And the reality of it is, we can't make ourselves holy before a holy God. Only God can do that. And he did it through Christ. See, if it's all about duty for us, then here's the thing I would say. We're missing or, or either never had an experience with God's grace and love and mercy. Because that's what keeps it real. That's what keeps it fresh. I can relate a lot to Peter. I can relate a lot to these soldiers because I believe Peter became somewhat self-righteous in his, his behavior, which made him depend on himself. I believe these soldiers um, were just doing this out of this duty. I can see myself um, falling into that at times. And, and, and the thing that I realized is, especially right after I got saved, man, it was all about what I had to do. It was all, and for the, for, you know, for 24 years of my life, I'd lived for me. I had gone and done everything I wanted to do. And then finally I get saved. And, and it's like within 48 hours, I was the judge and jury. And I couldn't understand why everybody didn't love Jesus. Right. And, and I became so self-righteous that I didn't only hold myself to a high standard. I tried to hold everybody else to one as well. And it didn't work. One night it kind of came to a head. We were in Waynesboro, Susan and I, this is before we had children, and we're sitting at the table, and I was just on a rant about people um, who weren't living for God. They claimed to be Christians, they weren't living for God. I was like, ah, 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 ah. you know, I was just giving them up one side, down the other, just letting them have it. And finally, Susan, in her mild way, she goes, well, you know, what you really need to do is love them, talk to them, pray for them, and show them the right way. And then I slammed my hand down on the table. And I'm like, we're eating supper, eating supper at, the at the table. I slam my hand down on the table, like the glasses pop up off the table, the plates jump up. I swear it's like English peas rolling across the table. It was, it was crazy. And, and, and I slammed my hand down and I said, that's not good enough. And then it got really quiet. <laughs> it was like, ooh. And she just kind of started eating again. And I'm sitting there thinking, I might have a problem, All right? 
And so I started looking at my, my own heart and I'd gotten to this place where I'd come to this, this fork in the road where I was trying to make myself godly rather than depending on the grace of God. I was trying to make myself um, good enough, acceptable enough um, through all of this legalistic type of living. And I came to this fork in the road where I was just tired. I was tired of the strain. I wasn't enjoying my relationship with God. Everything was about what I had to do, not enjoying Jesus and letting him work out of my life. And you come to this place when you live that way, you come to this place where you do one of two things. You either end up turning and walking away from God because it becomes too much of a burden for you to bear, or you realize it's all about his grace and mercy and you fall on his grace and mercy and say, God, from now on, I'm living out of that. Thankfully, I came to the point where I realized it was about his grace, his unmerited favor, his unconditional love, what Jesus had done for me on the cross. And I came to a place of surrendering so that it began to move again from duty and what I had to do to enjoy my relationship with God. And here's the thing, I still have to fight for that today. Because in this world, it is so easy for it to become about what we do or what we, we say or how we act rather than enjoying our relationship with Jesus. The Bible says that we should work out our salvation, not work in our salvation. When God does something in our heart, it begins to change our life. And when we cling to him and we abide in him, as John 15 says, he produces that fruit in our lives. We can't lose the joy of our salvation and trade it in for just some duty that we have to do. Verses 12 through 14 also mentions these Jewish leaders. Some were these officials that they call them, some were priests um, that are throughout this text. Um, it mentions Annas, who was the, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest. Did it just get real dark and all of a sudden? All right. Um, and so I didn't know if that was just my eyes or if like, I was thought I was about to pass out or something. Anyway. Um, so who was, who was the father of Caiaphas? It talks about all of these, these uh, Jewish leaders who were in this scene. And I believe from studying this and, and from looking at this, that the one thing that I would describe these Jewish leaders with is threatened. I believe they were so threatened by Jesus. Uh, the Bible tells us that um, they were envious of Christ. And I believe that they were threatened because it threatened their way of life. It threatened their existence and the, 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 the way that they lived. It threatened their popularity. It threatened taking the spotlight away from them and putting it on Jesus where it really belonged. And I wonder for us how many times that's one of the reasons we don't follow Christ is because we're afraid that uh, it's going to cost us something. It's because we come to a place like then where Jesus, we see him almost as a threat because what if he changes my life? What if he changes something? But isn't that the point, right? That he changes us that he does something in us. And for some of us, it's, it's, it's a sin, it's something in our life that we know God's put his finger on and he's saying, this needs to go. But we're afraid if we let that go, somehow we're gonna be cheated out of life. And what God's telling us is if we'll just let that go, he can show us true life. But we can't pursue Jesus and, and pursue sin at the same time. 
It might be a sin, it might be a lot of sins. It might just be coming to a place of dependence on Christ and trusting with everything you have. Listen, I am a control freak. I like to know things that are in my control, but God has been stretching me lately. He's been stretching me about letting go and trusting Him. And, and, and it's even been in my mind where um, maybe not as put in this exact way, but my feelings are, have been that Jesus is somewhat a threat to, to, to my life, to my way of life, to my way of living. Because what if he's calling for more surrender than I'm willing to give him? What if he's calling for more of me than I think is humanly possible for me to let go of? But the thing I keep seeing is his patience and how he keeps working and how he keeps stretching and how he keeps saying, just trust me, just trust me, just trust me. One of the things I have the hardest time trusting with is my children. Is God going to take better care of them than I will? And I have a hard time just letting that go. But I have to realize that the best place for me to be is out of control, right? <laughs> Not like crazy out of control, but like out of control, out of the, the, the control of my life and putting it in God's hands, putting my children in his hands, putting this church in his hands and trusting him with everything because Jesus wants to bring that abundant life to us, not take it away. But these Jewish leaders saw him as a threat. If you look at verse 28, um, it talks about these, these leaders, some in 19 through uh, 24, but I want to look at 28 real quick. It says, then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. This is so crazy to me, and this shows how much more superstitious these Jewish leaders were than they were actual followers of God. Um, because here's what they're doing. They have broken at least 43 laws in the arrest and trial of Jesus, um, but they're worried about going into a Gentile, a non-Jew's house, because it'll make them unclean, and they can't participate in the Passover. Is that not insane? And so they're thinking that we've got to do this thing so that we can eat the Passover so we don't become unclean. Meanwhile, we'll kill an innocent man. How backwards is that? How messed up, right? That they're missing the whole point. But what they were doing is they thought that these outward observances, these religious observances, these religious acts were enough to keep them right with God, to keep them clean, to keep them whole before God. But the reality of it is it wasn't. See, they couldn't lift that burden off of them. I need a volunteer real quick. Who wants to volunteer? Who wants to be a part of the message? Instead of being, hearing a message, you want to be a part of a message. Come on. All right. John, well, he's, he's running up here, so he's coming. All right, so we got a volunteer. This is what I want you to do. I want you to take this bucket, just an ordinary bucket, no magic here in this bucket, okay. and you can just hold it, hold it with both hands. How's your biceps feeling? Weak. Weak? Yeah, we need to be strong. You got to hold that out there for me. And here, I want you to think about this as your life. I want you to think about this as, as your life and this bucket being your life because what happens in life is we begin to take on burdens. For one, for one thing that we begin to take on is our sin. We begin to hold our sin. That's pretty light. You can probably get away with that for a little bit. But then we do some things that don't seem right. And so we take these bricks. I, I keep a couple of these up here now to throw at people when they sleep. But 
I'm going to use most of them. But, but we take our sin and we put the burden of sin on our shoulders. And, and then we're carrying that sin. And then the thing that we do next is we say, oh, I know, if I do some good things, then maybe it'll overcome that sin and that guilt for my sin. It becomes a band-aid for my conscience. And so what I do then is I take the burden on myself of trying to make my sin right. And so I do that and I feel a little bit better because actually the feeling of the weight of the burden of doing something right for God sort of seems somehow to ease my conscience, right? And so then the problem is I mess up again. And so I take a little bit more of this burden and I put it on myself. How's that feeling? It's getting heavy. Don't throw your back out or anything doing this. Okay. All right. And, and so we put another burden on ourselves when we slip up and we keep slipping up and we keep messing up. And so we keep putting a more burden on ourselves. And so here's the thing that we end up, how you doing? I'm shaking. Shaking? Yeah. That thing's getting low. Come on, come on. I'm kidding. You can let it down. <laughs> Are you trying to coach me? Yeah. And so, so here's the thing, though. Then we think if I can just do a little bit more, if I can do a little bit more and be a little bit better, and we put another burden on ourselves, and then you end up like this, where no wonder most Christians look like they just ate a dill pickle because we're miserable, because this is our life, right? We're just living this out in this way where we don't need someone to come and give us another thing to do. We don't need someone to come and tell us that, that you need to do one more thing. What we need is a savior who would come and take the bucket, right? Who would take the bucket from us, take our sin from us. Let's give John a hand as he goes back to his seat. But see, that's what Jesus did for us is he came and he took the burden of sin on himself. It says that the one who had no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. It tells us that Jesus, that, that we're all under a curse of sin. We're all under the curse of death. But Jesus came and, and he became the curse for us to redeem us from the curse. And so our religious observances and these religious acts, they don't come as a way or means of salvation. It just becomes a burden, something else that we have to do. The reality of it is what those come from is a heart that's bent towards God, a heart that loves God, a heart that's been transformed by the grace of God. Because Jesus came and took the bucket from us. He took the burden from us. He took it off of us. Have you ever experienced the sweetness of God's grace when it removes the sin from your shoulders? When he gives you new life, you could just like flap right now, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's like, it's the best thing in the world. It's the best thing that you'll ever experience is Jesus taking the weight of sin off of us. A burden that's too much for us to bear. And here's the thing, why wouldn't we live for him? <laughs> if he does that for us, why wouldn't we live for him? It only makes sense. Why wouldn't we have passion for him? And don't get me wrong, I don't wake up in the morning and I'm just like, woo, Jesus. Like when the alarm goes off, that's not the first thing I do. But you know what I do? I preach the gospel to myself. I remind myself of what Jesus has done for me. I remind myself of the work of the cross. And it begins to stir up in me an affection for God and the spirit of God. It begins to stir up. And, and, and pretty soon I can feel the presence of God as I'm worshiping him for what he's done. But we need to preach the gospel to ourselves and remind ourselves what he's done for us. So that we live out of that. Not trying to live by ceremonial observances. If there were one thing in Southern Christianity that I think robs us of the joy of the Lord is we try to earn something that Jesus has already given us rather than living out of it. The last one 
is Pilate. And we're, let's look at verse 33. It says, Pilate then went back inside the palace. So you got the Jews outside because they won't come in because they don't want to be unclean. You got Pilate and Jesus inside. So Pilate's kind of like a ping pong ball going back and forth between the two. It says, Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, is that your own idea or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews, but now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you're right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Then Pilate, this is the question we started with, what is truth, Pilate asked. With this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? See, I believe if you look at all the gospels, what you can see with Pilate is that he was swayed. He was a man who was swayed. Uh, he was swayed by popular opinion. He realizes that Jesus is an innocent man. So on one side, he's got this, do I sentence an innocent man to death? But on the other side, he's got this, these Jewish uh, leaders who are leading people um, in this uproar. And he's like, do I do I do not do what they want me to do? And I believe he's being swayed by popular opinion. And I think for us that happens many times. Many times we're swayed by what other people think. We're swayed by uh, what other people do, so that we aren't the same people on Sunday morning or Sunday evening as we are uh, in, during the week. Because we're swayed by the people that we're around. Sometimes it's because we're ignorant of the truth. That's why we need to be in the Word. We need to know the truth, but sometimes it comes because of a great fear of man. And again, I'm preaching to myself in this because I can be the most guilty of, of being fearful of what other people think, but I have to come back and remind myself that I'm answerable to one person. One person's going to hold me accountable, and that's did I do what Jesus told me to do? And if I can magnify God in my worship and I can see him as bigger, then the opinions of man becomes much, much smaller. But are we swayed by what other people say or think or do, or do we stand firm on the foundation of Christ? Because I believe Pilate was a man who had been swayed. And so you look at all these people and you see that in, for each one of them, they all have an encounter with the truth, but they, and they all interact with it differently, but none of them really see Jesus for who he is or what, he, what he's, he's going to do. And tonight I would ask you this, have you recognized that? Because this whole chapter is laced with the truth. This whole chapter is laced with the gospel in ways that you might not see it on the surface, but it's there. In verse four, when he goes out and he meets them coming into the garden, he, and they're coming to arrest him, uh, Jesus goes out and confronts evil. You know, that's what he did, is he confronted evil. Uh, on the cross, that's what he did was he confronted evil. Verse eight, Jesus answers them, if you're looking for me, then let these men go. What did he do? He stepped in between humanity and evil, which is exactly what he did for us on the cross is he stepped in between us and evil so that we could uh, be delivered from it. Verse 11, it says, put your sword away as he's talking to Peter. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? In other words, I'm about to take the wrath of God on myself so that you don't have to. 
Verse 12 at the end and then 13, it says, they bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. See, Jesus was bound so that you and I could be set free. He, he was bound, he was beaten, he was crucified so that you and I could be set free from sin and death. Verses 17 and 18, um, and then over in 25 through 27 again, they show us that we can't save ourselves. Verse 28, as we just talked about, shows us that our religious ritual and our, our superstition won't save us. And then the final thing is in verse 40, when you look at this, it says, they shouted back, as Pilate is trying to release Jesus to them, they shouted back, no, not him, give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. Barabbas was a, a rebel who, who was a murderer. He had led a revolt against the Romans. And so they're saying, give us him, don't give us Jesus. And I would tell you this, that for every one of us tonight and, and every moment of our lives, we have the same choice. On one side is Barabbas who represents rebellion against God. On the other side is Jesus who offers us abundant life, who offers us grace. And we have that choice constantly before us. Which one will I choose? We come to a place in our life where we have to, to, to come to a point of choosing Jesus for our salvation. But even after that, who am I going to follow? Who am I going after? Who am I going to pursue? Am I going to pursue my own way? Or am I going to pursue Christ? And so we have that same choice between Jesus and Barabbas, between grace and following God's will and rebellion and going after our own way. But the Bible is very clear that life is found in the pursuit of Christ. Life is found in the narrow way, not the broad way that everybody else is going down, but the narrow way of following Him. And the joy is found in the narrow way. The joy of knowing Him and being in relationship with Him. And so we've got that choice. And here's the way we need to see it. Listen, the Bible talks in here and Jesus says that He is a King. Now, now, Pilate's thinking a king like, uh, you know, over an empire. Jesus is talking about being the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's talking about being God. Now, here's the thing I would tell you. Either Jesus is Lord with a capital L, he is our savior, and he is God, or he is an absolute crazy man. Because nobody claims to be God, calls himself God, and isn't God that isn't crazy. If I came up to you and said, hey, my name's Brandon, I am the Lord. Like you, I'd be nuts, right? So there's only really two ways to look at this. Either Jesus is God or Jesus is crazy. That's really boiling it down to its simplest form. That's it. There's no in between. Either his claims are true or he's a liar. This is what I know, that He is the truth. This is what I know is that when we ask the question, what is truth, we're looking at it. The truth of Jesus and who He is, the truth of what He does in our hearts, the truth of the transformation that comes, the truth of being set free from our sin, the truth of being able to live a godly life, that's the truth of Christ. And we can come to that. We can live in that. But what is he to you? Is he, is he crazy? Is he out of his mind? Or is he Lord? Who are you going to follow, Barabbas? 
going to follow Christ. Your will or His. Because here's the options. Those are the only options that there are. If we boil it down very simply, that's, that's what we got. My hope and my prayer is that you'll follow Jesus. God would open our eyes to see the truth. And tonight, maybe that's happened for you. Maybe all of your life has been spent in this religious, maybe in, in the religious institution, maybe going through religious motions. But you never really grounded your faith in Christ. You never put your hope on Him. You never looked to Him for salvation. Maybe you never experienced what we talked about with the bucket and the burdens of experiencing His power to release that sin off of us to be made new as the Bible tells us that he who is in Christ is a new creation. The old's gone, the new has come. But tonight you can, because Jesus invites us to a relationship with himself. And so if you're here tonight and you've never said yes to a relationship with Jesus, I'm not gonna let you leave without asking you. The Lord's knocking on the door of your heart and saying tonight that he wants you to be his. Then open the door. And if tonight you say, yeah, I'm, I'm accepting Jesus for the first time as my Lord and my Savior, then I'm gonna ask you right where you are, just, just reach up your hand, stick it up high in the air so we can celebrate with you salvation. What an awesome thing to celebrate. Coming to a place where our sin is removed, where Jesus has set us free. Anybody here tonight that you know that's what's burning in your heart? The day is the day of salvation for you. then maybe you found yourself in one of those five places. Maybe you were like Judas who was in a place where you've been thinking that Jesus was supposed to make you great. And it's just a turning. It's a, it's a realization that my life is to be spent living to make Jesus great, to point people to the greatness of Christ. Maybe you're like Peter. You've fallen into this place of, of confusion or maybe into this place of dependence on yourself and trying to save yourself. It's robs you of the joy of a relationship and you need refreshing. Maybe it's like those soldiers that it's just become a duty for you, something you have to do. And the joy of your salvation seems to be a fleeing thing. But tonight you say, I just want it to be simple. I just want Jesus. I just want to experience his grace and his power. Maybe you're like those priests. Maybe there's something you've been running from God with. He's been putting his finger on it, but you've been running. And today it's time to stop running and to turn around and to release it to him and to let him have it. Or maybe you're like Pilate, you've just been being swayed by popular opinion, by people around you. And tonight you say, no, that, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm turning to the one who gives me true life. I don't know where you're at in that, but if you find yourself in one of those places, then this is what I wanna do, I wanna pray. If you want to come and spend some time at the altar, you're more than welcome to. If you just want to stand up at your seat as an act of faith, I'll pray for you right there. We'll pray together and believe that God's working in our hearts, that the Spirit of God is going to do a great work in us. So while we do this, I'll pray. You move. You move. You come to the altar. You stand to your feet in an act of faith and repentance and saying, God, I'm going to trust you with everything. I'm going to trust you with this, whatever this is for you tonight. But I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask you to respond to respond in faith to what God's doing.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love and grace in our lives. Thank you for your heart for us and for who you are, Jesus. Father, we pray that you would truly do a great work in our lives, in our heart, Lord. We need you, Jesus. We need you. God, but don't let us make it about all this stuff and all these different things. Let us keep it simple about you and your love and who you are in this relationship, this incredible relationship you brought us into. Help us to live for you, Lord. I have hearts that are overflowing with joy, hearts that are overflowing in the abundance of your love, God. Make that true in my own life. As I fix my eyes on you, God, there's so much static in the world. It causes us to not hear your voice. God, let us hear it clearly. Let us calm our things around us. Let us hear your voice speaking to us clearly. Let's find you in your word, in prayer, in community with other believers. Plant our feet firmly on the foundation of Christ that we can live be what you created us to be. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name.